Good morning. Uh, welcome again to worship. It is good for us to be together this morning. We give thanks. Uh, do not take for granted this opportunity to be together in person and uh, long for the day when we will be set free from masks and distance and all that, uh, but grateful still that we can be together. If you're a guest, we're particularly glad that you are with us. Uh, took the risk not only from COVID, but just the risk of coming to a new place with strange people. We are glad that you are here, and uh, we pray that you quickly would sense uh, welcome, become a part of our life together, uh, and uh, welcome you into every way in which you can do that. And Becky, we'll be talking about some of those later on in the service. There is a, a black pad there in your pew, if you could take that and sign it. So that's one of our ways of knowing who's here this morning. We are in our series on the Gospel of Mark and find ourselves in chapter 9. Last week we looked at the story of the transfiguration when Jesus' glory was revealed to Peter, James, and John on top of the high mountain. And they saw Moses and Elijah there talking with Jesus. And then Jesus transfigured his glory uh, shining from him. And then the glory of God showing up in the cloud and a voice from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him, right? And then there was no one, no one but Christ alone. And they walked down the mountain. And then this is what they found. Our text this morning from Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. Listen again to God's word to us. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This too is word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want us to look at this story, this scene from three different perspectives, three different characters, three different emotions. 
First, imagine, imagine that you are one of the nine disciples who are left behind, left below. Jesus and the big three, Peter, James, and John, go up the mountain and have this mountaintop experience. But what about the other nine? We, I don't know if we could come up with their names if we tried to together, right? The other nine, uh, I wrote them down because I couldn't remember them, right? Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, uh, the other James, James the son of Alphaeus, the other Simon, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, and Judas. They're left behind to just hang out at the bottom of the mountain while Jesus and the three are up on the top. And then as they're down there, this father shows up with a son who's got this spirit that prohibits him from speaking or hearing. And what do we do? Tell him, well, sorry, the rabbi isn't in right now. Uh, he's up on the mountain and sh we're not sure when he's coming back because we really don't know how long Jesus will be gone. It was a high mountain. Probably at least all day he was gone. My suspicion is that Jesus did not give them a time when he would be back either. And so they're confronted by this father who is desperate for his son. When will the rabbi be back? Can you help me? And the nine are confronted with the, the desperation and the misery of this man and his son. And at some point, I suspect, one of them said, Hey, when Jesus sent us into the villages to preach and, and to heal, we were able to heal and to cast out unclean spirits. We can help you. They had done this thing, kind of thing before, back in chapter 6. Sure, we can help you. So they did. Or they tried to do what they had done before. They commanded the spirit to leave, but nothing happened. And you can imagine right, our sense of embarrassment. You can imagine their scrambling. You can imagine the, the advice they start to give each other, right? Andrew, when I did it, I said this, or, or I think you need to speak more boldly, right? Or we should put our hands on them, right? And, and the advice of how they could do this and, and do it right. They tried everything. And the worst thing was, right, the, the teachers of the law were there, the scribes. And they began to criticize them. What makes you think you can do this? Who gave you authority? You have no authority to do this kind of thing. Jesus told you to do this, and it's not working, which just proves that this rabbi indeed is not from God, right? And we can imagine the disciples rising up to defend Jesus, and the argument begins. I wonder, does this picture feel like your life, like our life? We know who Jesus is. We have seen him do great miracles. We believe in him. But he's gone. He ascended up the mountain into the presence of God's glory. But we were left behind here in the valley. Confronted with the misery of the world, with this boy, with a spirit of deafness, and we are doing everything we know how to do, but we cannot cast it out. Does that describe your life? We still believe in Jesus, but our lives lack his power, his authority. We are waiting for him to come back, because if he were here, he would fix this. We still believe, and we will indeed defend him and argue with whoever might try to criticize him. In the end, all we can say is, well, wait until Jesus comes back. We know he's coming back. We just don't know when. But when he does, 
He will make all things right. And then we can hear our critics too, right? If this Jesus is who you say he is, then his disciples should be more effective. Shouldn't you be able to heal marriages, heal sexual brokenness? Shouldn't you be able to heal the racial divide within your church? Why do you have 35,000 different denominations in one, in just the United States? Why are there so many walking wounded who have been deeply scarred by the church? Can't you identify with the nine? They were trying as hard as they could, but they must have been looking up the mountain. Where is Jesus? Right? Where is he? I wish you were here. And we're told in verse 15 that when the crowd indeed, when they saw Jesus coming, they were overcome with awe and ran to greet him. This is a picture of, of Jesus' second coming. When he returns from ascending to his glory, all will be filled with awe, and his disciples will be relieved, overjoyed, and will rush to greet him. This is our first perspective, the perspective of the nine. The second perspective is the perspective of the one, of Jesus. Jesus is coming down the mountain. He has just been with Moses and Elijah. He has finally been able to give three of his disciples a, a glimpse of who he truly is, to remove the veil for a moment so they can see his glory. And then his father has spoken from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And Jesus knows exactly what he must do. He knows the cross is before him. He is ready. He's explaining all of this to the three. And when they get to the bottom of the mountain, he's confronted by this crowd, upset, angry, arguing, all speaking at once. This father then explains to you that he brought his son to be healed, to cast out this spirit of deafness, but that your disciples could not do it. And the Jesus' reply in verse 19 is surprising to us, right? The Jesus that we know, he says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? What's going on? Jesus sounds almost impatient, right? Certainly exasperated, fed up, right? It's been the question I've been struggling with all week thinking about this text. Why is Jesus so upset? Why is he so frustrated at this point? And reading the commentaries, we hear different explanations. Some say this response is an example of Jesus' humanity, that after the, the high of his experience on the mountain, he has little or no patience for those who won't believe when he has just seen the glory of God, just seen Moses and Elijah. And in his humanity, he is exasperated with those unable to trust what has been made so obvious to him. Others say that Jesus' response is an example of his divinity. He speaks as one who does not belong to earth, right? As one just passing through. How long shall I stay with you? He's exasperated with these earthlings. Much like God with Israel in the wilderness in Numbers 14, 11, where God cries out to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And then the question also is, and, and who is Jesus frustrated with? Is it the scribes, the teachers of the law, who are always so eager to find fault with Jesus and his disciples? 
Is he exasperated that they spend all of their time searching for a reason not to believe? Is he exasperated with his enemies who refuse to accept the evidence that is right before them? Or is he exasperated with his disciples, with the nine? In Matthew's version of the story, Jesus uses this opportunity to tell his disciples that if they had just a tiniest bit of faith, they could have healed the boy. Just a mustard seed's amount, Jesus says, would have been enough. Was he exasperated that they didn't even have that much faith? Or is he exasperated with the father? When they bring the boy to Jesus and immediately the spirit starts convulsing the boy and Jesus asks the father how long this has been happening to him, the father answers that it's been happening from childhood and is often cast into the fire and into the water. And then he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And then Jesus has definitely exasperated in his reply in verse 23, if you can, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. And as Jesus is just sick and tired of people coming to him who doubt if he can do anything. Like the Lord with Israel in the wilderness, how many times did they wake up and find manna waiting for them? How many times did he feed them with meat? How many times when they needed water did he provide water? Every day there is the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by night. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Or, or is Jesus exasperated with us? is exasperated with us because we are like the scribes, because we love to doubt, because we love to ask theological and philosophical questions, not so much because we want the truth, but because it protects us from action. If I maintain my doubt, if I refuse to let go of my questions, then I can pretend that I'm being a person of integrity when really I'm just afraid of the change that Jesus will bring to my life if I surrender to him? Or is Jesus exasperated with us because we are like the nine? The nine asked Jesus afterwards, why could we not cast out the spirit? And Jesus says, because this kind can only come out by prayer. If you look at that verse, verse 29 in your Bible, you'll see a footnote where it tells us that their other ancient manuscripts add the phrase, and fasting. This kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. But this is only a footnote because our oldest and most reliable manuscripts don't have and fasting. It's thought that someone copying the gospel added that phrase in or some preacher on preaching this text added that phrase. But it doesn't belong. What was needed to cast out the spirit in this boy was not the amount of faith of the disciples. It was not greater earnestness of the disciples. If Jesus is exasperated with us, it is because we think it is all about us. It is because we are frustrated that we cannot do this and we wish we could. We wish we knew the right words, we had the right technique. The point is, do we believe? Jesus gets frustrated with unbelieving, this unbelieving generation. And then he says that they need to pray. Believing and praying go together. Apparently, the nine did not think to pray. They thought they could do this. They had done it before. They knew how. 
as if it depended on them. They didn't need to, to fast more. They needed to believe. They needed to pray. Hear me clearly. The inadequacy of the disciples was not the problem. Our inadequacy is not the problem. The tasks that Jesus gives us to do are beyond our capacities. But that is not the problem. Jesus, is he exasperated with us because we failed to pray? One of my biggest fears for us at Blacknell is that we exasperate Jesus because we are too confident in what we can do, because we are a well-educated congregation, because we have a, a wonderful history and story of who we are and what we've done. We know how to do this, whatever this is. Of course, education is not bad. Education is not the problem. Our lack of faith is the problem. It is thinking that we can figure out how to navigate our congregation through these times by ourselves. That is the problem. It is thinking that I am smart enough, mature enough to, to parent my children. That is the problem. We need to pray. Jesus said, bring the boy to me. We need to bring our boy, our girl, our congregation, our broken relationships to Jesus in prayer. Is Jesus exasperated with us because we are like the father in this story? Because we don't believe Jesus can make things right. We pray, if you can do anything, because all we can see is what is right before us. We see so clearly the unclean spirit. We see so clearly the problems. We see so clearly the impact on the ones we love. And we don't see clearly who it is that we are praying to. And we pray what Alan Poole used to call wimpy prayers. The father prayed a wimpy prayer. If you can, and I'm not sure you can, but if you can, it's okay because, well, it's not your fault. But if you can, it would be nice if you might be able, I don't know, if you could maybe cast out the spirit in my thought, maybe, right? We pray wimpy prayers because we don't want to be disappointed or because we feel like we have to protect God from not being able to heal. And so we exasperate Jesus. And finally, then, this third perspective of the story is from the perspective of the Father. You have heard about this Jesus you have traveled with your son, hoping that he might heal your son, the son whom you love. You find his disciples are disappointed when the rabbi, Jesus, is not there. You tell them your need. They offer to heal him, but they cannot. You are desperate. There's nowhere else to turn. And then Jesus shows up, right? You explain to him what your need is. And your son goes into convulsions as he's brought to Jesus. And you simply say to Jesus, if you can do anything, please have mercy. Have pity on us and help us. And then Jesus replies, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. And you hear the rebuke in that, right? You hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice. But you also hear the promise. Everything is possible for one who believes. And Mark tells us immediately, right? Immediately the father cries out. And the, and the word cry, I think it says exclaim in the NIV. He shouted, I, I believe! Help my unbelief. Right? You latch on to this promise that if you believe, 
anything is possible. I believe. Help my unbelief. This is the faith the size of a mustard seed. I believe. Help my unbelief. I acknowledge my doubts. I acknowledge my own inadequacy. It's like Peter, like in the Gospel of John, Jesus, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? I believe. Help my unbelief. One last thing. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. Jesus rebuked the spirit, and the conclusion of many was that he was not better. He was dead. And if you were the dad, you must have feared the same thing. Oh, my goodness, what has happened to my son? My God. When we come to Jesus, things might work, look worse than before. When we pray in faith, it might look like our hope is dead. But, that beautiful word, but, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he arose. He stood up. The word he stood up is the same Greek word, that Jesus used earlier in the chapter to talk about how he must suffer and die, and then on the third day he would be raised. It's the same word he'll use again later on in the chapter when he says the same prediction, I will be raised. Jesus raises up the boy. We are living in this in-between time, right? We bring our boys, our girls, our congregation, our world, our whatever illness, sickness, we bring it to Jesus. And sometimes he speaks the word and we see the healing and we praise God for it. And sometimes there is a shriek and a convulsion and it's as if our son is dead and we are waiting waiting for Jesus to take him by the hand and raise him. That is our hope as Christian people. Jesus will take by the hand and raise him. Because all he needs is a mustard seed worth of faith. Do you believe? Lord, help us in our unbelief. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We bring whatever it is that is heavy on our hearts. A child, a friend, our nation, our world. We bring it to you. And we wait. Because there is nowhere else we can go. 
we believe. Lord, we do pray you would help us in our unbelief. Help us to not just look at the problem. Help us to look to you. Help us to have eyes to see who you are, Jesus, to see your compassion, to see your strength, your power, your glory. And we pray by your spirit that you would help us to hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I said at the beginning of the sermon, do you feel like the nine?